Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi guys, I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com. Now, back to the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode. Uh, this is Steve Ray for the Italian Wine Podcast. This week, I'm pleased to have as a guest Amy Ezrin, who's a longtime friend in the industry and uh, well-connected in the Italian wine business. Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. Good morning. Uh, good morning. And uh, tell us a little bit about your background and connection with Italian wines. Well, the long and winding road that it usually brings most of us misfits to this business uh, started, I would say in restaurants, working in restaurants, both in New York City, uh, and then ultimately I moved to Italy and lived there for about eight years uh, while I stayed connected to that community. I sort of transferred what was a burgeoning love for French wine onto Italian wine so that when I left Italy and moved back to the United States in 2005, I uh, knew at that point that I wanted to be in the wine and spirits industry and more specifically uh, in the world of importing wine to the U.S. At that point, I was very fortunate uh, to get a job sort of fresh off the boat, as they say, uh, with Skernick Wines, which was at the time Michael Skernick Wines. And that is, uh, of course, has been a school for many, a wine industry professional, if I can give myself that word. I worked a bit for Polanar Selections in New York as well. And then I moved to Massanoy Imports, where um, we sort of grew uh, a license into a real company. And I curated that portfolio for about nine years. Then I took a position at the Italian Trade Agency, where I ran a national marketing campaign for Italian wine on behalf of the Italian government. Uh, and that, I guess, uh, jettisoned me to where we are today, where I am uh, a partner in uh, a small boutique importer called the Piedmont Guy. We, as you can imagine, import wines exclusively from the region of Piedmont in Italy. I also do a little bit of consulting with a few wineries uh, directly, basically helping them get imported into the US. This is a smaller part of my business. And more importantly, I recently launched my own wine brand, which is a three liter bag in box wine uh, named Sandy Giovese, affectionately after the grape of central Italy, Sangiovese. And that is uh, getting out into stores now. Great. And we'll get into that a little bit later in uh, in the interview. So uh, speaking of your work at the, at the Piedmont Guide, describe the model. A lot of people, one of the issues people have is, you know, I'm, I'm looking for an importer and they're not really, they're looking for an import solution. Uh, maybe it isn't you know, there isn't just one model, the old agency brand. So talk about the model that you follow with 
Piedmont guy. Okay. So yes. So the Piedmont guy, uh, our model is actually very old school in many ways, in the sense that we uh, really are that sort of traditional company that buys wine, selects wine and buys wine in Italy, specifically in Piedmont. In this case, we import it to the U.S. And then we sell it to distributors, wholesale distributors around the country, who then in turn sell it to uh, retailers and restaurants. So our role is both in those relationships with the Italian companies from whom we purchase and also in supporting our distributors in their sales of those products to their customers, who then in turn sell their wines to the good private folk of this country that drink wine on a regular basis. And so talk about logistics, because you're unusual, somewhat unusual in that regard. While you're using a service importer, it wasn't like you started with the service importer as the solution. You started with your import company and chose the, well, tell us. Right, Steve. Well, you know, I don't know. There's a there's a sort of a chicken and the egg question buried in that, which is that um, we, uh, as the Piedmont guy, as a small company, I don't know how easy or feasible it would have been for this company to have gotten to where it is today had we not been able to actually outsource our logistics to another company, which in this case would be Elenteni Imports, uh, based in New York City, uh, also in California. The existence of companies like this, they're not the first. Uh, I would argue they might be the best, but <laughs> a plug for also who are my dear friends, I suppose I should point out. But this is a, a, um, a structural kind of company that's existed uh, for some time. And uh, Elenteni, I think, has you know, kind of brought it to the next level. But really opened up a lot of opportunities to small importers uh, and small uh, distributors even who are trying to sell on a boutique level. The logistics behind importing and reselling, uh, and also even if it's domestic, of course, but reselling alcoholic products uh, in this country is a labyrinthine process. It is incredibly nuanced and it is very expensive. And the cost of maintaining essentially a staff to do that work for you, or this, or really uh, the cost of, let's say I'm just a one-man show, or in this case, we are a four-man show, the cost of us to us to be able to outsource that and focus on what we do on a daily basis, which is uh, buying and selling, means and it gives us an incredible opportunity. So once upon a time, the role that we play, I think, might have only lane with with larger companies, with companies with a larger structure that could be national importers. Uh, now that these kind of services and this kind of structure exists, you see that there are plenty of other companies structured just like ours that are operating in this space, thanks to Logistics Provider. Okay. So let's move on to sales. You know, you've been in the business for a long time, we've had a couple of changes recently with COVID, but let's talk more broadly about how the sales function has changed and how communications happen between you as a importer person. So, you know, everything has changed and nothing has changed, right? <laughs> we have, I think, collectively all learned a, a lot of virtual communication skills uh, that we hadn't really developed before. Just the other week, I did a tasting via Zoom. I sent ahead a series of samples to a buyer uh, in Washington, D.C. of a prominent Italian restaurant. 
uh, and we tasted on Zoom. Uh, we had the meeting that we would have had in person via Zoom. And um, I believe I walked away with three glass pours and like 10 new list placements and a huge order for some library wine. So awesome. I didn't have to go to Washington, D.C. I didn't have to travel there. I didn't have to haul my bottles, et cetera, et cetera. And it really worked out great. On the flip side of that, none of that would have been possible if I didn't already have something of an in-person human relationship with this buyer. And if I didn't have their confidence uh, and their attention, which I'm extremely thankful for. So, uh, you know, again, this proverbial chicken and egg thing, you know, there's no, I, I find like there's no replacement really for that human interaction. And in fact, despite restrictions and COVID and travel and all of that, uh, both my, myself and my two colleagues, uh, we have really kind of somehow continued our sales efforts in person. And we have traveled throughout this time you know, cautiously and to certain markets and maybe skipped others. Uh, but we've found, I'd say, a very interesting hybrid between the two. I think that, you know, sales today, we are in a very crowded field. There are a lot of more creative ways that we can approach it. But I think at the same time, there's really no replacement for a, uh, you know, this in-person relationship, uh, that actual, you know, sort of the, the human touch in a way. And also there's never going to be replacement for simply being prepared and knowing how to do your job and knowing, you know, what your customers need and offering a service. And, you know, that's a, a segue into what I regularly harp on is just uh, follow-up and organization. And, you know, we can all always do it better, but I think ultimately in sales, are the biggest thing we are selling might be beyond just our, our actual product, uh, might be our ability to manage up and our ability to do the jobs of our customers for them. And I think you know we can complain about this and say, well, everybody should be doing their job. But the fact is that in sales, your job is to do everybody's job uh, because that's the one way you can guarantee that it's going to get done. And that's the best way you can effectually move your product. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the portfolio briefly. Um, how many brands are there? What are some of the more uh, notable ones and how the change that COVID has wrought has impacted your business? The portfolio currently, uh, we have 10 estates and one proprietary brand. The, uh, I think our most prominent name in our book is probably Pottery Odero, uh, the great Barolo, historic Barolo producer. We do not represent them in every market, uh, but we represent them in a large, in the majority of the United States and also a little bit in British Columbia. Amazingly. We, uh, otherwise, we typically uh, represent small to medium-sized family-owned wineries. All of them are, you know, farming uh, sustainably, really all organically, not necessarily certified. They're all working with indigenous varieties. They're all making wines in a fairly traditional fashion, with the exception of a couple of more creative products that we've developed along with them. I think the biggest problem for us with COVID, outside of you know that real quick pivot that you did um, at the beginning of the pandemic to really shore up your retail contacts and get in touch with your retail customers, and make sure that you were investing in those relationships, which was, I think, you know, a 
could a big change for all of us who had worked significantly with restaurants up until that time. But for us, one of the biggest um, handicaps has really been not being able to travel to Italy and not being able to go not only visit our producers, but meet new ones. And that I think, you know, we're do, we're actually going in a couple of weeks. I, all of us are literally chafing at the bit to get over there, anxiously watching, you know, new restrictions and changes go into place because we're determined to get over there and meet some new folks and, you know, taste some stuff that we've already tasted before and, and expand because um, at this point, we are extremely fortunate to have done very well throughout what has been a very difficult period, and we need to expand in order to grow. So one of the areas that you were talking about, and I think I found really interesting, was working with, you used a really fabulous term, gateway natural wines, uh, Arnais and Brocchetto. But can you talk a little bit about that and also in the context of B Corp and organic? Sure. Okay. So first of all, you know, there's always that logic to when you're selling small production, esoteric, possibly more expensive wines, that you still need to fill palettes, right? <laughs> so everybody still wants to fill that palette to the top, right? From us out of our wineries to our distributors out of our warehouse in the U.S. So to that end, it becomes real handy to have some wines that sell in volume that are less expensive and that maybe respond to market trends, right? All, of course, under the umbrella of utter authenticity, which we, of course, adhere to. So one of the things that made us very successful were brands that we had had a hand in developing as opposed to the you know wines that are made by our estates and that are their flagship wines. We already had, for example, a line of leaders that we had developed made from Barbera, a Bianco, which was Cortese, and a Rosato. We added a Moscato d'Asti in a 750 to that, and this is our Ercole line. We had always sold this DI and then during COVID figured out how to make the mechanics behind it and the pricing essentially work so that we could sell it stateside. And that was instrumental in our uh, ability to grow throughout the pandemic. Absolutely. hundred percent. Though that's a proprietary brand that we make in Piedmont. We have done something similar with one of our partners in Piedmont, which is the winery Angelo Negro in Roero, where we have, they, we've long worked with their estate wines, which include, of course, Arnais, uh, because they're in the Roero. Uh, they make absolutely divine Nebbiolo. They make lovely, sparkling, sweet Brachetto. At one point, um, the Piedmont guy himself, who is uh, Weston Ford, lives in Minneapolis, who started this company, he was in the winery tasting tanks of brand new, uh, you know, finishing Arnais of the newest vintage and said, and it was cloudy and, you know, had sort of a different flavor to it, unfiltered. And he said, could you bottle it like this? And they looked at him like he was maybe a little bit crazy and then said, sure. And so thus was born our unfiltered Arnais. So what basically happened here is we took a classic and traditional product and tweaked it with the winery a little bit so that it would have, let's say the appearance or many of, would have many of the qualities of what people are looking for when they are looking for quote unquote natural wine. So uh, I call it gateway natural wine because it it's not an extremely funky wine, right? Like it doesn't have, doesn't have barnyard 
notes or anything like that but it does have that unfiltered quality so it has sort of like a yeasty profile it it would it's a wine that actually could really appeal to beer drinkers right or sour beer drinkers it's just a little alternative and you know in fact it is not you cannot bottle it as Roero Arnais because it is unfiltered because it is considered untraditional by the rules of the DOC um, or DOCG so you know it's bottled as a vino bianco but but um, products like this, we, we then added uh, during the pandemic, actually launched its red sibling, which is made from dry brachetto, also unfiltered. And that has also been a, a resounding success. So, um, you know, it was like a creative move and certainly responding to some of the preferences of today's wine drinker. Those have been wildly successful wines and they have really helped us also grow. They have helped all of our distributors grow. They have been instrumental really for them just in accessing certain types of accounts and in making sure that Piedmont Guy wines are sold very regularly. And, you know, that's always an investment in also selling some of the more esoteric stuff that we really love to sell, like our, you know, Vespolina from the Alto Piemonte or, you know, Erba Luce from also from the, from the Canavese up in the Alto Piemonte or for Timorasso from the Colle Tortonese. You know, all of these wines really benefit uh, from the fact that we have these other wines that are a little more, shall we say, mass market, mass appeal. It just keeps the wheel turning. Interesting. So leaders, talk about leaders for a bit, and then we'll m- move on to the B Corp thing. Leaders are, you know, a really, in- an increasingly popular package right now. You know, it-, it goes without saying that, you know, you're still talking about a glass bottle, right? You're still talking about a resource. You're still talking about something that's not actually going to get used again and may get recycled to a certain extent, but possibly not entirely or at all. So that, you know, a liter bottle of wine when you're drinking it every day or when you're having a party puts six glasses of wine at your disposal as opposed to four and a half, right? So that right there is a benefit. It's great in a more casual restaurant when you're pouring by the glass, you know, it's a screw cap. Leaders are, you know, increasingly loved and you see a lot more, a lot more types of wine coming out in that format. It's funny, some producers are a little hesitant to work with leaders because they see them as being, you know, less important or, you know, cheaper maybe. You know, I would argue that for your entry-level wine, like, why not? It's modern, it's fresh, it's hip, and it's, you know, eco-friendly more so than that 750. And, you know, they really make sense in a lot of settings. Uh, Retailers love them. So, you know, we have these wines and leaders. I have a hilarious, well, there's a hilarious picture on our Piedmont Guy, the Piedmont Guy Instagram right now, which was taken from a recycling bin in Manzanita, Oregon, um, at like the town recycling center. It was literally full to the top of our Ercole leader white, right? These blue labels with a bunch of bottles of fireball thrown in there. <laughs> and it was like, clearly somebody had a great time with Ercole Bianco, which was awesome. We love that. We support that, you know, a round of applause. But, you know, they got a lot of bang for their buck. There's fewer bottles ultimately in that recycling bin right now because those folks were drinking out of liters, right? Fewer bottles, more wine, drink more. Okay, I get that. And, you know, it's a great project. I see more people developing them. I've helped other people develop them from other regions of Italy. It's a cool, it's a cool format. Yeah, we when I was working with Austria, we saw a bunch of producers doing that, and they used the beer cap thing too. And I think those were wines that were still throwing off sediments. 
uh, some Gründers and so forth. Right. And Austria kind of set the bar for that. Like that, it's really Austrian Gruner. That, I mean, to almost to the detriment of Gruner Veltliner from Austria, serious Gruner Veltliner, because then everybody just thought of it as something that came in a leader. So that's what I think scared the Italians. But I think the Italians shouldn't be scared. They should be doing leaders. You know, I think it's a great option. Okay. So let's move on to clean wine, natural wine, organic, sustainable, and now this B Corp thing that I had never heard of that you were filling me in on. Okay. So the leader, I think, is a good segue possibly to other formats, which would be a box of wine, right? Um, and that's where that's where that B Corp conversation comes up. So, you know, going back, taking a step back, first of all, if, you know, we want to talk about organic wine, you know, that's, that's one topic. If we want to talk about eco-friendly wine from the perspective of packaging, that's a, another topic altogether. I, I honestly think we can tackle organic first because I think this, this is a, a, a topic that is both tired and also super current, right? Like essential. The consumer, I think we know, doesn't really distinguish necessarily, is certainly, you know, confused a little bit about organic, biodynamic, sustainable. You know, when we talk about wine, I, I think, you know, it's the whole organic thing is a little, is a little just extreme. We need, we are, we're a little, we've jumped the shark a little bit. In other words, all of my small wineries that I represent in Italy um, are all farming organically. They're not using chemicals in their vineyards. They're using copper uh, and sulfur diluted, right? To fight off certain diseases throughout the growing season. And they're using them as sparingly as possible. And, you know, that's kind of the, the end of the story, right? Like what more do we want other than grapes grown without a lot of fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides and all sorts of other crap being sprayed on them. Okay. After that, certified organic, you know, these become very huge costs, significant costs for a small farm to bear. And often, you know, these folks come in and cause more disruption to a small winery than they help. I won't even, you know, I love the concept of biodynamics and I love a lot of wines that have been grown biodynamically, which is of course like a more, let's say, you know, organic on steroids in a way, right? It's like, it's very, it's very um, dogmatic, right? It's a, there's a very a certain prescribed set of rules. The results can be very, very interesting. But do I agree that I, as an importer, should have to pay for my own subscription to the certifying entity that oversees biodynamics when my winery has already paid for it and I'm not farming anything because of my, because it's a marketing tool? You know, this, we start, we, I think we've gone a little too far at this point. What I would say is that we all need to, you know, it comes back to the importer in a way, right? Like I, my name is synonymous with what I say about my wineries. If you are concerned that my wine is organic, you as the buyer, right, should believe what I say. And if you don't believe me, then you're probably, you maybe you're working with another importer, right? Like it's kind of credibility in a way that we represent, that we represent these small farms. To the average consumer out there, you know, that's a question of, uh, we got it. We have to know our audience, right? Like the person who wants my wines, uh, is somebody who I think is already pretty educated about wine, pretty interested in wine. They're already relying on a retailer most likely to help them find new stuff. Uh, and if they're concerned about a wine being organic, 
I would expect that they would believe that retailer as much as that retailer would believe me. And it's kind of this chain of like, you know, what are we investing in here, right? This speaks to the B Corp thing in the end, because just organic doesn't, you know, necessarily mean that you're getting uh, the product you desire. And just because it says organic in some way on the label doesn't mean that that's a better product than another. Again, I think we need to look at our sources. What I think is a more interesting topic for all of us in the wine industry and for the consumer, quite frankly, is the packaging, right? Like when you are talking about a fantastic Barolo, yes, I still want that in a bottle that is a 750 milliliter bottle. I still want it in glass. I still want it with a cork. I want all those things because I want that inert material of that glass. I want that more or less that quantity of wine. You know, all of those things stay the same. But when it comes to the wines that we drink on a regular basis, I think we really need to look around at how we are serving ourselves and what we are doing and how that impacts the environment. So liter bottles are great. You just got a whole quarter more, right, of uh, of wine and you use less glass to transport it when, right? You are drinking a wine. There's a wine that you drink all the time on a regular basis on a, you know, that you just keep around. Why not buy a three liter bag and box, right? That has four bottles of wine inside of it. And that box is one tenth the carbon footprint has one tenth the carbon footprint of that single glass bottle of wine. That's a win for everybody. That's a pretty significant win, right? You mentioned B Corp, which I would say is beyond organic. And then if we you know, start talking about the product that I've developed in a bag and box, uh, Sandy Giovese, that producer, the producer who makes that wine for me is pursuing their B Corp certification. And B as in the letter B, Corp as in corporation. There are multinational companies that have already signed up for this that are not necessarily agricultural companies or winemakers or any of those things. That just happens to be the case of who I work with. It is an overarching certification for sustainability. So if you are an agricultural company, of course, you should be practicing, you know, farming methods that are absolutely sustainable that do not contain chemicals that enhance that encourage biodiversity etc 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 but beyond that organic's not enough right at the, after that what's your packaging like what's your what's your packaging's import impact on the environment uh how do you transport what kind of uh, vehicles are you using what are your employment practices do you practice fair employment do you support your employees do you have do you employ a good balance of men and women uh, people of color etc etc all of these questions, this is a 360 degree approach to sustainability. And I think that's actually more interesting. Like, let's ask our wineries if they're doing that kind of thing. Let's not just focus on organic as, as this, you know, word that fixes everything. And beyond that, you know, you mentioned clean wine. This is a cute little tagline that we see these days on wines and uh, a nice little soundbite that people are using to sell wine. I mean, what the heck does it mean, right? clean? Did they, you know, is, is there a little, a, a dash of Clorox in there that's going to um, cure your COVID as well? I mean, clean wine, what, what we're all talking about here and what every single wine drinking individual could have done was go to a great retailer and just, you know, say, I want a wine that is a little lower in alcohol. I want a wine that doesn't have a lot of sulfites. I want a wine that's artisanally made. I want something that's small production. Ultimately, what do we want? We want farmer's market wine as opposed to supermarket wine, right? Clean has no meaning at all. 
right? Because uh, clean meaning what? There's nothing, there's no extracts in that wine. There's no, you know, minerals in that wine. I mean, no, you want wine as a living, breathing thing, right? Made from real fruit that we have figured out very, very careful ways of preserving and moving around the world so that we can all enjoy it. I think that we should be talking more about how do I get farmer's market wine, meaning small production wine made by small farmers, uh, people that live in their vineyards and that breathe the air that rises off of them in the dust on hot summer days. Like that's clean wine because those people are living in the middle of it, right? And that's what everybody should be looking for. Just like you're looking for a tomato that actually tastes like a tomato. So you go to the farmer's market. Okay. Let's shift gears to a more commercial subject and tell me about the idea behind Sandy. You talked a little bit about Sandy Giovese with the idea of the packaging and better for the environment and all that kind of stuff. But it's more than that. It's a big jump you made to create a new product. So this was really born of those moments, those early days of the pandemic when I was, you know, locked in my house in Brooklyn and I hadn't, you know, been out the door for three weeks. I start, I, I actually have a very good friend who owns the company Communal Brands, Melissa Sanders, and she is a queen of wine boxes. She's developed a bunch of wine boxes over time, particularly in France. She has one from Austria, speaking of Gruner. Uh, and uh, she, I, she was doing her Master of Wine thesis at the time on retail impression, buyer impressions of sustainable packaging. And I, I, you know, listened to her a lot about the topic. I helped read her paper, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of inspired me to think about building, you know, creating my own brand in a box. I really, I love the concept. I love the utility of it. I love, you know, the opportunity that it really does present to a consumer to be more eco-conscious in their purchasing habits. And I also, at the same time, was thinking, well, what do people really want to drink right now? And so I looked at, you know, what was available in the market for box wine and what is selling uh, when I look at, you know, my independent retail customers, um, what are they, what are they selling a lot of? What are people drinking a lot of? So I kind of merged all of that together by coming up with an Italian red that would be chillable, you know, drunk cold. A lot of the retailers in Brooklyn and Oakland and, you know, Cambridge, et cetera, they're all featuring chillable red sections on their websites, right? Um, and Or in their stores. Uh, and I think that's great. I think, you know, we're finally uh, coming to the point where the consumer understands that, you know, the um, abuse of wine by temperature is no longer acceptable. And uh, we all really like to drink red a little cooler. So I just saw an opportunity. I saw a wine, a type of wine that didn't exist in a box. And I also see a huge opportunity among people who already drink quality wine, people who like, you know, to explore wine, who are somewhat knowledgeable, who live in, you know, possibly in places where they have access to retailers with great programs who are selling really cool stuff. You know, and these people maybe don't always want to open a bottle of wine, right? Like they don't always want a whole bottle of wine, or maybe they, you know, maybe they won't drink that night because all they want is one glass, or maybe they just want something really, really simple, you know, to have a glass with dinner. And then, you know, they're going to hit the bed early because they have a big day tomorrow. What's around for those people? Not a lot, right? All that, that was really out there in that space, in that independent retail, fine wine environment were a lot of Southern French reds. Um, a, a lot of, uh, of course, 
you know, there's all the massive inexpensive stuff, but there just wasn't a big choice. Uh, so I thought, okay, here's a space that is ripe for expansion. And I think that I'm not alone. I, I am confident. In fact, I've already seen that there are a number of new box wine brands coming out that are aiming at that same space. I haven't necessarily seen one that's a chillable Italian red. So I figure I'm a little bit ahead of a trend here. Uh, this is in fact, Sangiovese blended with Trebbiano. I was also inspired by a wine in our Piedmont Guy portfolio, Nebbiolo. So I think we're going to see a lot more in that space. And I, I really think that the education has started. I think there are tons of articles being written about box wine all of a sudden. In fact, I just heard over the weekend that Andre Mack, who you may be familiar with, who his brand is Mouton Noir, uh, and he has a bunch of restaurants in Brooklyn, that he did a piece on box wines uh, for Bon Appetit. And there's going to be a little video about him reviewing a few box wine brands. And apparently Sandy was his favorite. So that's pretty cool. You know, I'm, I'm trying to make a box wine that is for people who like good wine, right? People who won't drink Francia or Bodo Box or Black Box, which by the way, are three of the top 10 wine brands in the United States today. So of the 10 top wine brands in the US today, three of them are bag and boxes right? Like that says something to me that says that the American public is aware of boxes and that there must be a whole series of people who are like, okay, cool. Where's a box that I'm willing to drink because they're not going to drink that stuff. They want farmer's market wine in a box. Okay. We're running over long on time. Okay. We're come to the end of our um, session. One of the things I like to end my interviews with is what's the big takeaway from all the things that we talked about here today, the advice or the thing that would be of value to someone listening. You know, obviously, we're people listening are distributors, importers, retailers, consumers, I mean, all agencies, all that kind of stuff. Of the things you talked about, what's a big takeaway? Oh, well, gosh, Steve, <laughs> let's, for the sake of this conversation, assume that we have a lot of folks that are either producers or folks on sort of that exporting side of things. I, I would say that one of the messages to take away from this is really creativity in your product selection, right? Like don't, first of all, open-mindedness to all types of formats, I think at this point needs to be had. I think smart wineries are looking at diversifying their products. So you still, you know, make your flagship wine in a glass bottle. Great. But what else can you develop a, that is a product that is a shorter lead time, right? That is a quicker return on investment, but that is, you know, really suited to the market you're approaching today, right? Like that is something that is, that is different, that is ahead of a trend. Don't necessarily be so concerned that it's going to Hurt your image, I think more than anything, if you can get your labels and you can get your wine out there in any way, you can get your name out there, that is, in and of itself is more valuable. And also just the, uh, you know, from a logistics perspective, having something that will fill pallets makes it so much easier for your importer and, you know, in turn, your distributor to, to keep the orders flowing, uh, especially at a time when it's just extremely expensive to get wine on containers and out of Europe and into the US. That's a whole topic we didn't even cover. And difficult. Yeah, we won't go there. Okay. So a uh, big thank you to Amy Ezrin of the Piedmont guy for being our guest this week. Amy, thank you very much. Some really interesting comments there. I sure appreciate your time. My pleasure, Steve. Anytime. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening. 
on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.